0: Welcome to episode 14 of History of the Marine Corps, The Marines Help Out General Washington, Part 1. In the last episode, we discussed a few more battles at sea and contributions made by Marines over the British Navy. The reprisal is finally authorized to set sail, and the Lexington and Alfred participate in their own adventures against the British. We also saw the construction of the new 13 ships, authorized by Congress, and specifically built for war. The Marine Committee also issued uniforms to Navy and Marine officers and issued pay raises. During this episode, we dig into the beginning of the Trenton Campaign. We spend most of this episode digging into Samuel Nicholas and his new role. We also discuss some of the Marines who were selected to lead on four of the newly built frigates and explore the life of Robert Mullen. Towards the end of the episode, we'll introduce George Washington and his current struggles. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Last week, the British and the Americans meet again at sea, but this time we saw support from the French in the form of supporting firepower from their forts. The French allowed the American fleet to dock at their ports in Martinique. They repaired damages American ships may have taken from previous engagements and loaded the American ships with muskets, powder, and other supplies that would help in the fight for independence. The American fleet even received a new paint job from the French. During 1776, the American fleet was growing and gaining more experience in naval warfare, For a relatively new fighting force, they weren't doing too bad against the superior navy. The Continental Navy and marines were gaining a lot of experience from these battles, but the first unofficial commandant of the Marine Corps, now Major Samuel Nicholas, wasn't involved as much with the actual fighting anymore. He was on board the Alfred, but during the summer of 1776, she would have most of her marines and sailors on board moved to smaller ships of the fleet. Nicholas was the senior marine, and he couldn't command one of the smaller ships. This responsibility was left for the junior captains and lieutenants who recruited most of the men serving on board these ships. His chances of seeing action anytime soon was rare, so he requested a transfer from the Alfred back to Philadelphia. His request was granted by Commodore Hopkins, and Nicholas made his way back to Philadelphia. When Captain Nicholas arrived in Philadelphia... He met with John Hancock, who directed him to report to the Marine Committee. During this time, the Marine Committee was starting their investigation against Commodore Hopkins for his actions during the New Providence raid, which we discussed during last week's episode. The Marine Committee was also focusing on the complaints against Captain Dudley Saltonstall and Captain Abraham Whipple. For whatever reason, Nicholas did not stay long at the Marine Committee and after completing some personal business back at home, he requested to be sent back to his fleet in Rhode Island. However, the Marine Committee saw great value with Nicholas and thought he would better serve the war by staying in Philadelphia and helping with major decisions. The committee denied his request and ordered Major Nicholas to organize and train the four companies of Marines being raised for the newly built frigates. On June 25th, Congress selected the Marine officers to command the Marine detachments on the four newly built frigates near Philadelphia. Benjamin Dean was appointed as Captain of Marines on board the Washington, a 32 gun frigate. Dean was originally from Philadelphia, but his family lineage is unknown due to the popularity of his surname. However, one Benjamin Dean of Philadelphia authored his will on December 20, 1780 before leaving on a trip to Europe. His will was probated almost a year later on November 30th, 1781, and listed his brothers, John and William, amongst the executioners and administrators of his will. Part of his estate inventory included a steel-mounted small sword, a bayonet, and a military guide. Dean would have two lieutenants appointed under him on board the Washington, Peregrine Brown was appointed as his first lieutenant and Abel Morgan was appointed as his second lieutenant. The Randolph, another 32 gun frigate, had Captain Samuel Shaw appointed as the captain of Marines. Franklin Reed would be appointed as his first lieutenant and his second lieutenant was selected a few months later, a Frenchman from the West Indies, and I'm going to screw up his name, Panetier de la Falconiere. On board the Effingham, a 28 gun frigate was Andrew Porter. Porter was born on September 24, 1743, in a farmhouse four miles outside Norristown, Pennsylvania. He had eight brothers and five sisters. His father was Robert Porter, an Irish immigrant who came to the colonies in 1720 and was originally from the Isle of Burt. Andrew Porter was more of an academic and had a talent for mathematics and science. He opened a very successful school in Philadelphia in 1767. On March 10th of the same year, Porter would marry Elizabeth McDowell and father five children within the next six years. Elizabeth would die on April 9th, 1773 while birthing twins. He would marry again on May 20th, 1777 to Elizabeth Parker and have another seven children, four sons and three daughters. As we'll discuss, Porter had a successful career as a Marine, but would leave in the spring of 1777 to become the captain of the 2nd Continental Artillery under Brigadier General Henry Knox. He would rise through the ranks in the army, and participated in the battles of Brandywine, Germantown, and in operations against northern Native American tribes. After the American Revolution, Porter would live a relatively quiet life on his farm in Norristown humbly rejecting multiple well-paid employment offers. He would receive an appointment of Brigadier General and placed in charge of a Pennsylvania Militia Brigade in 1800. He was also appointed to Brigadier General in the Army and Secretary of War in 1812 and 1813 by President James Madison, but he declined these roles due to his age. Porter would die on November 16, 1813. Daniel Henderson would serve under Porter as his first lieutenant, and James McClure would serve as his second lieutenant. The last frigate was also the smallest. The Delaware housed 24 cannons, and the Marine captain assigned to this ship was another well-known Marine, Captain Robert Mullen. Due to the significance of Robert Mullen in Marine Corps culture, we're going to spend a few minutes covering his life. Similar to most people born during this time, the birthdate, location, and his parents aren't well known. What we do know is that Robert Mullen was a resident of Philadelphia. If you search the internet, many references will point Robert Mullen to Tun Tavern, but there isn't documentation that proves this is actually true. Tun Tavern was located on the corner of Tun Alley and South Water Street. The Pennsylvania Gazette lists the Thomas Mullen as Tun's proprietor, and other references claim Margaret Molin, also known as Peg, as the owner. However, there isn't evidence that Robert Molin was their child, or even if they were married. Even if Thomas and Peg were married and Robert was their son, Robert Molin wasn't commissioned until after the Continental Marines reorganized on June 25, 1776, and Robert Molin didn't begin enlisting men for his company until after his commission. Once he received his rank of captain, Robert Mullen enlisted men in and around Philadelphia and assembled them in barracks. The first barracks of the Marines were the original barracks built for the Highlanders, who were brought to Northern Liberties, Pennsylvania. The barracks sat north of the city, across Ray Street in the swamps of Peg's Run. A walkway would later be built that connected the barracks to the city. On November 24, 1776, Robert Molin was the president of a court-martial for Private Henry Hassan at the barracks, charged with desertion and quitting his guard post without properly being relieved. Hassan was found guilty and sentenced to 50 lashes for desertion and 21 lashes for quitting his guard. Hassan would return to duty after his lashes, but deserted a second time a little over a month after his return. Robert Mollen would participate in multiple engagements throughout the Revolutionary War which we will get into. On April 1st, 1777, Captain Mullen accumulated four months of service and his pay amounted to 45 pounds. Spoil alert for those who aren't familiar with American Revolution history, but the Americans would reoccupy Philadelphia after the British abandoned their posts in June 1778. The Marine barracks were re-established and Mullen was ordered to recruit a company of 50 Marines which he did from August 9, 1779 to early 1780. However, as discussed in previous episodes, most men who served in the militia before the Revolutionary War were free. They could come and go as they pleased. The Second Continental Congress enacted some laws to counter desertion. However, the culture wouldn't change so fast, and Molin would experience a lot of his Marines leaving. Molin put out an advertisement that stated deserters, if captured, should be delivered at my quarters, the corner of Pine Street and Front Street. Molin would continue his career as a Marine recruiter and presumably go back and fight and be captured by the British. I say presumably because not much is known about the events on how Mullen was captured and imprisoned, but on February 16, 1781, Molin sent a letter from the Jersey prison ship at New York to Thomas Bradford, who was the Commissary of Naval Prisoners in Philadelphia. The letter stated, Mr. David Sproat, Commissary of Naval Prisoners here, has promised me that if you will order a person for me, he will set me at liberty. If you have a Marine or officers in the privateering day, I beg you to send him immediately for me, or let me know the reason I am forgot by you. If you have not a Marine officer, send somebody else. By his word, he will let me go. Records show that a John Ebert, who was in the custody of Commissary Abraham Skinner, was considered for the prisoner exchange in March 1781, but the exact date of the exchange isn't known. Captain Robert Molin would also be one of the signers of a petition to the Second Continental Congress on April 28, 1783, regarding back pay for sailors and marines. There isn't much information regarding Robert Mullen's life after the Marine Corps. He may have been the proprietor of a beefsteak and oyster house on Walnut Street between Front and Second Streets. A directory lists a Robert Moller at 312 Walnut Street, but it's not clear whether this is a different person or a misspelling of the name. Both Mullen and Moller weren't very popular at the time, so it's a bit of a coincidence that there were two Robert Molins slash around the same area. Robert Molin was also voted into the Masonic Lodge, too, Ancient York Masons, on March 29, 1762. But another record shows of Robert Molin being admitted to the same lodge on December 8, 1778, as a steward. Stewards are often tasked with an understudy role to fill the position of the senior deacon or junior deacon in their absence. Some historians believe that both Robert Molins could have been father and son. Robert Mullen's death is not recorded, but Doyle Sweeney of the Auditor's Office Treasury Department of Philadelphia and author of A List of the United States in the Late War stated that he died before 1794. That's still a few years away and Robert Mullen would participate in a few events that will help document his name in Marine Corps history. Back to his assignment on the Delaware, Mullen would receive David Love as his first lieutenant, and Hugh Montgomery as his second lieutenant. Two other Marines were appointed as officers on the same day. Joseph Hardy would serve as captain of Marines. He was currently serving as ship's clerk on board the Columbus and stayed on board for the rest of the year. William Gilmore was selected as a second lieutenant, but it's unknown on which ship he would serve. Some think he served as an extra lieutenant to help out with the four frigates, in case one of the other lieutenants was killed or was inadequate for the job. Molin started to recruit for the four frigates immediately after he received his orders. On the same day he was given the job, Molin recruited Colin York and Peter York, two brothers who would serve as the company's drummer and fifer. Philadelphia was the easiest place to recruit new prospects. His two lieutenants made frequent visits to this location to find new marines but they would also travel as far south as Kent County, Maryland to find recruits. On one of these trips, Mullen's lieutenants recruited two African-Americans, Isaac Walker and another man known only as Orange Negro. Both men received the same pay and allowances as any other Marine serving. Marine officers on the other three frigates followed suit and started to recruit men for their ships. The only exception was Captain Andrew Porter, He focused on his school and its 100 students while Lt. Daniel Henderson concentrated on recruiting Marines for the Effingham. Focusing on his school wasn't necessarily a bad thing since it's probable that many of his students would volunteer for service with the Marines after they completed their studies. For the next two months, all Marine officers had a hard time finding good men for service. To add insult to injury, Many men regretted their decision and deserted their posts shortly after joining. On August 14th, Lieutenant Reed from the Randolph reported his first deserter, Angus Cameron, born in Ireland, and described as five foot eight or nine inches, dark complexion, with short black hair curled behind, a little pockmarked, and about thirty years old. Reed offered 30 shillings as a reward and also reimbursement for all reasonable charges, but no one reported the deserter. While enlistment was being done by the Marine officers, Samuel Nicholas requested weapons for his Marines from the Continental Congress. With little debate, Congress agreed with Nicholas and on August 22nd, directed the secret committee to deliver enough muskets to arm the Marines. And probably one of the first times Marines experienced hurry up and wait, Marines who were recruited to the four companies would essentially stand fire watch. They were put on guard duty, and on September 16th, Congress ordered Major Nicholas to provide guards for each of the four frigates, the state prison, and the powder stores. A week after this request, Congress ordered that two of the Marine companies march to Fort Montgomery and guard the continental storage sites and the two frigates the Montgomery, and the Congress. However, due to enemy threats to the city, Congress changed their mind and decided to keep the Marines together in Philadelphia. In October, Scuttlebutt was circulating about British General Sir William Howe and how he was planning to send part of his army encamped in New York to invade Pennsylvania. The Continental Congress and the Pennsylvania Council of Safety teamed up to come up with a plan to defend the city. On October 16th, they submitted a proposal to the Continental Board of War. The committee suggested that the Marines are a necessary defense for the city and they either stay in Pennsylvania or move to New Jersey. The Continental Board of War agreed with the committee's recommendation, but the threat of invasion never came to fruition, at least not in the timeline predicted. With the Marines staying in one location, Major Nicholas had the opportunity to further train his men, instill discipline, and develop a sense of camaraderie amongst his marines. By November, the marines had a battalion of well-organized, disciplined men, and they were ready for a fight. They were also very healthy. Congress ordered Dr. Benjamin Rush, a prominent doctor at the time and known for his political activities during the American Revolution, including signing the Declaration of Independence, to take them under his care and see them properly provided for. This was great timing for the colonies and the Marines. In mid-November, they received a report that a large enemy fleet was moving south from Sandy Hook. Congress responded by ordering the Marine Committee to position its fleet in the Delaware. The committee also instructed the Randolph be made ready for sea, and Captain Shaw and his company was ordered to the frigate. Captain Shaw and his officers began to immediately recruit men to crew the Randolph. It turned out that the enemy fleet was a group of British merchantmen heading back to England, but Captain Shaw and his officers decided to run with the momentum and continue to recruit men, and it was a good thing they did. Fort Washington was taken by the British on November 16th and Fort Lee on November 20th. The British were now in New Jersey and Philadelphia had a looming threat in sight. The priority was no longer finding staff to support the Randolph, but to defend the city of Philadelphia. On the other side of the battlefield, our brothers in the Continental Army were having a difficult time with the British Army. The success of George Washington and his army were uncertain. By late November 1776, Washington lost New York and had to withdraw to Harlem Heights then to White Plains, and then at Peekskill. Washington crossed the Hudson on November 13th and retreated back to Brunswick. Once in Brunswick, General Washington sent a letter to John Hancock on November 30th, insisting they send reinforcements. His letter stated, Their arrival is much to be wished. The situation of our affairs being truly alarming, and such as demands the earliest of aids. Even with the urgency of General Washington's request, the additional reinforcements would be slow to arrive. Washington had 3,000 exhausted men, and they were being pursued by a 10,000-man British army. Without any other option, Washington left Brunswick on December 2nd and marched through Princeton to the east bank of the Delaware River in Trenton. Even in those days, news traveled fast and on the same day, residents of Philadelphia began to receive the news of the British occupying Brunswick. The situation seemed bad and the locals started to panic. They quickly loaded all of their belongings and wagons and started to plan their escape from Philadelphia for a more quiet area with family in the countryside. The Pennsylvania Council of Safety ordered all shops and schools shut down and ordered all citizens and militia to defend the city. Amongst the hundreds of men who were ordered to help out were the motivated three companies of Continental Marines. The fourth company, serving under Captain Shaw, was on board the Randolph. The three companies of Marines received muskets, bayonets, and cartouche boxes Everyone was anticipating an attack from the British, and by dusk, they were ready for a fight. Most of the three companies of Marines boarded gondolas and headed up the Delaware River to Trenton, where they would help George Washington and his army. Back in Philadelphia, there was still a lot of confusion about what was happening and what to do about it. Around 1,200 clerks and shopkeepers were ordered to gather and form a brigade to help fight against the advancing British. They were placed under the command of Colonel John Cadwallader. This brigade would get divided into three battalions. The 1st Battalion will be led by Colonel Jacob Morgan, the 2nd Battalion by Colonel John Bayard, and the 3rd Battalion by Lieutenant Colonel John Nixon. They had to act fast, and on December 5th, Colonel Cadwallader, with his partially clothed and poorly armed army, headed north to join George Washington. It was a cold and snowy voyage, but Colonel Cadwallader would eventually arrive and assemble his men opposite of Trenton. Once assembled, they would cross the Delaware. Washington was struggling to conclude what to do with Cadwallader's men. His first instinct was to send them to reinforce the rear, but on December 7th, he ordered them to remain at Trenton and wait for the rest of his brigade. Washington also requested that he take the sailors from the two frigates, the Delaware and the Washington, and the Marines under Major Nicholas, and place them under his charge. Washington stated that he will remain in charge until, quote, a further disposition of them can be made, if necessary, letting me know in the meanwhile if they came out resolved to act upon land or meant to confine their services to the water only. While Washington was preparing, and his men being assembled, the British never made a move. With an additional 1,200 men, Washington started to head out to Princeton on the 7th. However, shortly after he started his march, Washington received news that the British was indeed advancing, and they would try to cut off his men at Princeton. Washington changed his route, and immediately ordered a retreat back to Trenton. Once they arrived, they would withdraw across the Delaware, Washington ordered that all supplies left behind, and could be used by the British, be destroyed. General Howe was cautious with his chase of Washington and proceeded slowly. When Howe reached Princeton on the 7th, he split his forces into two groups. The first group would head towards Trenton and was led by Major General James Grant. The second group would head to Maidenhead, which is located in the middle of Trenton and Princeton. Grant's troops arrived in Trenton just in time to see Washington's troops crossing the Delaware and heading into Pennsylvania. However, Washington previously ordered all ships left behind destroyed and the British weren't able to follow. With Washington's troops retreating to Philadelphia, Howe decided to halt the invasion of the city, regroup his men, and set up camps stretching from Hackensack to Burlington on the Delaware River. Once the camps were set up, how headed to New York City to spend the winter. Based on incoming intelligence reports, General Washington deployed the rest of his forces along the Delaware River to the south and issued orders to his generals. Brigadier General Philemon Dickinson was sent to protect Yardley's ferry and place his troops along a front extending to a point two miles below the ferry, where Brigadier General James Ewing's sector began. General Ewing was to make his headquarters at a ford near Hoops Mill on Biles Creek and occupy a front which stretched as far as the Bordentown Ferry. Colonel Cadwallader took over the ground south of Ewing down to Dunk's Ferry, with his headquarters at Bristol. All three officers received similar orders. Spare no pains or expense to get intelligence of the enemy's motions and intentions. Defend against a British attempt to cross the river? and if routed to withdraw, to the strong ground near Germantown. Colonel Cadwallader's men were moved to Bristol and on the 14th were provided housing. The Marines would stay in the local Quaker meeting house, while Major Nicholas would stay at Bessonet's Tavern. Here, the Marines would patiently wait as General Washington sets up a defensive line along the western bank of the Delaware and prepares for an attack. Thanks for listening. Join us next week where we will see some action against the British and discuss part two of the Trenton-Princeton campaign, George Washington's struggles and victories, and how the Marines helped out. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.